a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with my broadcast partner, Amy Donaldson. This week, we're continuing our candidate conversation series for Utah's Republican gubernatorial convention that's coming up on April 25th. We're extending invitations to all the candidates for governor and their running mates for lieutenant governor to be on our podcast to discuss their policy positions and why they think they're the best choice to lead the state's government. Joining us this time is Republican Thomas Wright, former chair of the Utah Republican Party, and his running mate, former U.S. Congressman Rob Bishop. And thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. Thanks for having us on, Jason and Amy. It's always good to be with you. Thanks for all you do to educate our community. We really appreciate this. This is one of the things we look forward to. And and actually, it's been very well received by listeners um, because we get to know you in a little bit different way and maybe in a little bit more depth. Um, Let's start, Thomas. Would you give us some who are you? What's your family background, your business background? Yeah, absolutely. I was born and raised in Utah. I, I love Utah. That's why I'm running for governor. Uh, I want to give back to the state that's given me so much. Uh, I'm born and raised here. I've had, I've started my own family here. My wife and I have been married for 22 years. We have four children and we have started a business. And my leadership experience was really forged during a time of economic uncertainty and financial crisis because I started my business during the Great Recession in 2008. And as our economy's barreling toward another collapse, our state needs someone that's weathered a storm like that as a business owner. And we know that COVID-19 has changed more than just our work days and our social interactions. It's going to change the way we do business. It's decimated our economy and the job market. And it's going to take a real-world business leader to effectively support Utah's businesses, manage a really complex budget, make cuts to spending, make tough decisions, and focus our limited revenue on the things that matter to us most to get Utah back on its feet. So I come to this as a business person with that real world business experience, but I'm not a stranger to politics. As Jason said in the introduction, I've served as the Utah Republican Party chairman twice. And for the last 12 years, I have been involved as a volunteer, volunteering my time to help conservatives get elected and to represent the conservative values. And I wanna combine that knowledge of government that I have never having held public elected office with my business experience to help get Utah back on its feet. So Thomas, before we go to Rob and give, let him give a little, we, we kind of know who he is, but, but um, <laughs> why did you choose him? Why did you reach out to Rob um, or did he come to you? No, uh, you know, <laughs> Congressman Bishop and I talked last fall. I met with all the candidates that were running for governor before I decided to get in. And as the U2 song goes, I just didn't quite find what I was looking for. 
And Rob was one of the people I met. And I said to Rob, if you decide to run for governor, I would seriously consider supporting you. And we had that conversation. But when January rolled around, um, I, Rob wasn't in the race. I wasn't sure what he would do. Um, I think he would have been a fantastic governor. I've always been impressed with his leadership. And I just decided to get in the race on January 2nd. And about a week later, Rob called and said, hey, I see you decided to make the, the decision to get in. And I said, yeah. And he said, would you consider taking an endorsement from me? And I said, well, let me think about that for a minute. And I waited about 0.2 seconds and said, yes. And after that endorsement, I thought to myself, you know, who better to help me govern the state of Utah than Congressman Bishop? And who better to help make decisions for Utah than Congressman Bishop? So I made an unprecedented decision, a very early decision on running mate, maybe the earliest that's ever been made in a gubernatorial race, not based on politics and who could help me win at convention or who could help me win a primary, but who would be best to help me govern the state. And there's four things about Congressman Bishop that I love. Number one, he's been a public school teacher for 30 years and public education is the right Bishop administration's top priority. Number two, he has Washington, D.C. influence. We need influence in Washington, D.C. as they continue to overreach and overstep their bounds and impose their will on states, uh, that, and, they, and they step outside of the scope of the Constitution. Number three, he's been the Utah Speaker of the House, so he understands the Utah legislative process and can help me, as somebody who has never held public elected office, navigate that and to be effective on day one. And number four, he loves rural Utah and he understands the public land fights. And when he fights for public lands or he fights for rural Utah, he wins. He knows what it takes to look out for rural Utah. And that's going to be an important part of what I want to focus on as governor. Okay, Rob, give us, uh, give us the Rob Bishop. Who are you, your family life, your history? The Rob Bishop story? Yes. Okay. Well, look, I was, uh, I was born and raised actually in Davis County. And uh, graduated from Davis High, then went to the U, came back. Uh, my first full-time teaching job was in Brigham City at Box Elder High School. So I moved up there about 1974, and I have been living in Brigham City ever since that time. Um, I taught at Box Elder, then in the middle went down to Ben Lomond for five years in Ogden City, then came back to Box Elder, a grand total of uh, 28 years actually as a public school teacher. And in, in between that time, I was also in the legislature, um, a little bit younger than I am now when I went to the legislature, and uh, they, they were very kind to me. I served as majority leader and then speaker of the House for my last term, uh, and then quit because uh, I thought it was the right thing to do. Um, in between that and when I went to Congress, I also served, uh, as Thomas did, as chairman, state chairman of the Republican Party for a couple of terms. Um, he followed me in that role with a couple in between. And Thomas, um, unfortunately, as I was watching him do my job, I, I was just amazed at his ability of actually bringing people together, treating them well, and coming up with really conservative solutions. So the bottom line is actually he did a much better job as chairman than I did, which really kind of ticks me off. Um, <laughs> I could then, debate him on that, but I appreciate yeah. the compliment. Yeah, it's, it's true. Then obviously in, in 2002, I ran for Congress, and that's where I have been for the last eight, 18 years. Um, I'm not quite a former congressman yet. I still got like a half a year to go mm -hmm. before I hit that, that category. Um, but that's, that's basically both my, my political as well as personal history. 
And that's one of the things I love about Congressman Bishop is he was state party chairman and he walked away. He was speaker of the Utah House. He walked away. He's been in Congress. He's voluntarily walking away. He's a leader that knows how to get in and serve and get out. And that's that's uh, that he's been a good role model to me on that. I think we need more people to get in and serve and then get out. And I've admired that about Congressman Bishop. So to that question, though, I'm asking, I mean, having been in public service for quite some time, uh, why, why would you like to continue to do this, uh, Congressman? Uh, when I first of all, I was committed that Thomas Wright had the qualities, the personal qualities that I think a governor has to have uh, and also the background like I, I, we're going to have some tough times coming out of this uh, this virus situation we're in. I think financially, somebody who has a business background that they can bring into that, that can truly prioritize what is important, and that would be signified in our budget. But then he also, when he talked to me about being lieutenant governor, he made it intriguing for me because it's not going to be, as I envisioned, a traditional lieutenant governor. I won't just chair the committees the governor doesn't want to chair. Um, he had some specific areas, which I thought were my expertise in dealing with the legislature. Um, when I was in leadership in the legislature, we actually had a very strong working relationship with the governor. I would like to reestablish that concept going back in there to come up with really good policies for the state. He wants me to go back to Washington if we ever need to try and lobby Washington for, for waivers. And he wanted me to, to specifically deal with policy issues dealing with education, which has always been close to my heart, obviously, as well as public lands. And, you know, the state can't do as much as I could as a congressman on public lands, but there is a lot of stuff the state still can do, not only in public lands, but also my other, my other area in Washington was on the military and the armed services committee. The state does play a role in how we can assist and support Hill Air Force Base and the growth that's going to be happening in northern Utah because of new programs coming to Hill Air Force Base. So it was, I mean, it was it was a unique situation, mm-hmm. and I thought uh, it's cool. It wasn't just that I was bored and wanted a job. He was offering me, <laughs> he was offering me something that I thought was really very positive, and I thought where I could actually do something of value for the state again. Excellent. When we come back, we'll talk to you about some of the policies that you would like to. Uh, Consider when you, uh, if you were elected to uh, be governor and uh, lieutenant governor, we, we have with us Thomas Wright and Congressman Rob Bishop. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin, and my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. We're continuing our candidate conversation series for Utah's Republican Gubernatorial Convention coming up later this month. Today, we're speaking with Republican Thomas Wright. He is the former chair of the Utah Republican Party and his running mate, U.S. Congressman, and I I fired him earlier, so uh, I I shouldn't have done that, U.S. Congressman Rob Bishop. And uh, thank you both for joining us today. Wanted to get a a little bit further into kind of uh, policy issues, really. COVID has, has... consumed all of our lives, not just in Utah, but around the country and around the globe, actually. 
and I wanted to get some ideas from you, uh, uh, Thomas. What do you, how do you think you might have to tackle if you were in office, uh, get, making our economy uh, return to a sense of uh, a stability and, and trying to get our state back on track again to be where we have more jobs and we, we, we have a positive outlook going forward? Well, Jason, that's a great question. It's the most important question of the day. Our economy is barreling toward another reception, uh, recession. And let me tell you, like what we're seeing right now with the unemployment numbers is absolutely devastating. I saw a report this morning where we have 80,000 Utahns who filed for unemployment. This is a, a catastrophe for our families, for individuals, for businesses, uh, and it has hit them so hard. This COVID-19 virus hit us out of nowhere. Nobody saw it coming, and it's really decimated the economy, our job market, and the way we interact with each other. And I'm so glad that I'm in this race at this time because I uniquely understand as a business owner, as a CEO, not somebody who invests in business is to create jobs, but a CEO is in the trenches every day with employees. I know what it means to make payroll. I know what it's like to stay up at night and worry about making your lease payments and have to deal with landlords. I know what it's like to have to deliver a service and have people working from home right now. I'm uniquely qualified as the only CEO in this race to connect with the business community to help get this economy back on track. And so we, we really do need somebody that's not from government at this time. Government thinking is very different than the way private sector thinks. Um, government employees typically get their paychecks even in recessions. Private sector employees don't. And private business owners struggle. Uh, the economy is all about small businesses, and that's who I am. So I love my background, and I can help Utah get back on its feet quicker than any other candidate in this race for governor. And I know because of that, I believe I'm the best candidate for the job. Rob, maybe you can add to that. Are you learning anything from being a part of these federal discussions about, um, I don't even know what to call them, rescue packages or um, you know, emergency aid, to, uh, economic aid? Are you learning anything from the federal experience that you could bring or that uh, for uh, when you when we address the state issues? Yeah, and some things I think I've learned back there that I want to make sure we avoid when we come back to the state <laughs> Cautionary issues. tales, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now, look, for, uh, for everyone who has lost a loved one or has suffered through this virus, uh, you know, hearts go out to them. And I think also for everyone who has suffered financially through this process, um, Thomas has... I was always amazed at, because his business has been impacted, his employees and his clients have been impacted. And I really was amazed at how much he actually cared and reached out to try and help those going through this process. So if there is anyone that can actually bring our economy back again, I think Thomas really has those qualifications. This is kind of going to be his forte. He's done it before. He will be able to do it again, probably better than, than anyone else in the state, certainly better than I could. I do have one concern also, and this is more philosophical because I think for government, there is also an issue. At some time, this, this crisis will be over, and all the, all the orders will have, will, will have fulfilled their, their purpose. Um, everything we have done on the state, federal, and local level has been done by executive order so far. And actually, from somebody who has been in Washington and saw how executive orders were both used and abused by former presidents. It is worrisome to me that we have to insist that the government, once this crisis is over, 
relinquishes all the power that they have assumed under executive orders. And, you know, this crisis I can see going through this year, maybe even into next year. But I know that Thomas is committed to making sure that once this is over, that all those powers that have just been assumed will be relinquished and sent back. And then hopefully working with the legislative branch to come up with protocols for the future so that it's not just done by the executive branch alone, that the legislative branch is going to be organized in how Utah will face future life-threatening emergencies. And that's frightening because there are times when the government takes over those kind of authorities and powers and they don't give them back. And that is one of the things that is, is nerve-wracking, at least for me. Well, but I think the one thing we, yeah. we understand is that the one thing we can say, all experts agree, is our lives will be different once this is over. We have to see how that different is going to be restructured. Yeah, and I mean, I 100% am just so happy to hear you talking about these the executive orders and how we Congress has either ceded a lot of power to the executive branch or the executive branch has assumed it. Um, but uh, but that, that hasn't been a concern. I think it's a lesser concern because people are worried about health and safety. And, you know, I heard just this morning a, a gentleman on a calling show be very distraught. And I don't think we've acknowledged the amount of emotional pain that this isolation is causing people. And I just yeah. wondered if you had seen any of that in your I know the campaign has really changed. Um, anything else that you're learning about reaching out to people? Well, no, I, 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 go ahead, Thomas. You no, should answer ahead, that no. first. No, please. I, I've just seen how it's working with some of my extended families whose businesses are put in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think necessarily have to. Let me, let me do one shout out, though, to Governor Herbert. I want to at least make it very clear he has been much more cautious than most of the other governors in this nation have been. And I appreciate his caution with that. At the same time, that's still gonna be the discussion we have to deal with in the future, is are the powers that are now being given to, on both the federal and the state and local levels, are they actually gonna be rescinded? But I have seen how people have been frustrated trying to go through this and how they're gonna be able to pick up the pieces of their lives is gonna be a real challenge and that's why I'm happy that Thomas, who understands this firsthand and has all this empathy for what people are going through, is the right person to try and lead the state, uh, to try and help people recover. And it's, it's going to be a tough time. It's, it's not going to be an easy time for us in the future. Thomas, yeah, and uh, I, we've got a little bit less than a minute. Can you uh, just uh, kind of follow up on what uh, Rob just said? Well, I think he said it really well. And one of the things I've seen is the emotional and mental toll this is taking on people. Uh, I can tell you with 250 employees, I try to connect with them daily, uh, as many of them as I can, and they are really worried. And they're not just worried about their paychecks and uh, you know going back to work. They're worried about their family members and how long they're going to have to stay home and the social isolation. There, there's, there's a lot going on in our society, and I want everyone to know that I'm thinking about them. I understand what they're going through. And I love what Rob's saying about the check and balance between legislative and executive branch because executive orders have been overused in our country. And we need to look at that seriously when we come out of that. But for right now, all our energy needs to be on making sure our citizens are taken care of and they know we're thinking about them, we're supporting them, and that we're here for them. Thank you much. And listen, we're going to continue our discussion when we come back. We're having a candidate conversation with Republican Thomas Wright and U.S. Congressman Rob Bishop. And you're listening to Voices of Reason.
back to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. This week, we're, now we're going to be talking to uh, Republican Thomas Wright and U.S. Congressman Rob Bishop a little bit more on some of the issues that are facing uh, them as they uh, campaign, hopefully to become governor and lieutenant governor of the state of Utah. Uh, wanted to kind of jump into education. And uh, I know this is probably a, a, everybody's pet project, or at least a policy issue, but with a, a former so they educator, say. that's right, but with a former <laughs> educator uh, and, and a, a person who understands uh, history, very knowledgeable about that, I, I, I would like to hear uh, Rob Bishops. And uh, Thomas, we'll start with you, though. Uh, what are your views on how we can improve and potentially make education better, especially since we've learned a few things from having to do this distance learning while we're in this COVID-19 uh, crisis situation? Well, I'm surrounded by public school teachers. My wife is a public school teacher. Congressman Bishop's been a public school teacher. I, I want everyone out there to know that in addition to helping the economy recover from the COVID pandemic, public education is the right bishop's number uh, administration's number one priority. And really, there's three things that we need to do to improve our education system. But before I go into those three things, I want to give a big shout out to our educators and to the administrators for shifting on the fly to help <laughs> our children continue their education at home. I've watched my kids at home and I've been blown away by how adaptable the teachers are and how well they've done. And I want to give them a big shout out. And we want them to know that help is on the way. And we want to be an administration that supports them. And we want to do it in three, we three ways. Number one, we need to improve teacher pay. Um, and, and that's hard to talk about right now with the pandemic, but we need to make sure that our teachers are making more than a second income wage and that they are being treated with respect as professionals. That way we can end the teacher shortage and we can treat them with the kind of respect they need to have in order to make teaching a career. Second, we need to t let teachers teach. We need to deregulate the classroom and we need to get out of their way. We need to let them teach. There's way too much standardized testing and grading. Teachers know which students need additional assistance in the classroom. And instead of over-testing students, let's give teachers the resources they need to help students by providing additional aids and tutoring in the classroom. And that's the third idea, is we need to not only get out of their way, but they, they need those aids. They need help in the classroom. They're dealing with an mm -hmm. unprecedented amount of challenges in the classroom, and they need some assistance there to make sure that every child is reaching their potential. And I'll just close and kick it to Congressman Bishop by saying, we need to focus less on the processes in government. Uh, people that are in government a long time tend to focus on processes. Business people like myself focus on outcomes. The only thing that matters in public education is helping children achieve their potential. And you can't do that in a one-size-fits-all education system. We need to make sure that every child is reaching their potential and that we're focusing on that as the outcome. Well, I appreciate that. And a couple of things, and, and one of those that I think Thomas underestimated himself. He has served on the Board of Regents and worked with universities. So when it comes to higher education, he has a lot of, I think, very in increasingly good ideas of how we can improve our higher education system. And the fact that, well, I considered him somewhat of a, of a rebel on the, higher, the, the Board of Regents anyway, because he was willing to kind of buck the system and come up with creative ideas. So he's got the higher education system covered and uh, if we have time, you may want to go back to him on those kind of things. On public education, you know, with this virus change, our public schools have taken on a whole new role within their community. And as we exit out of that, they're still going to have a bigger role than they ever had before. And that's why the concept of local control of those schools becomes so significant and important. 
He mentioned what we need to do to uh, attract teachers in there. And it's a twofold process. Salary is going to attract more people starting into the process. But once they're there, you have to make sure that the, 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 the situation in the classroom is there, that we can actually keep good teachers in the classroom. Teachers need to be more than simply a facilitator of technology. Technology is going to be very important, but it also presents some challenges to it, i.e., do the programs actually come from us, or are we insisting on taking programs that are provided by those who are, are giving us the technology to use them? Um, the areas of assessment and um, accountability and standards mm-hmm. really are coming uh, in amazing amount of degree from the federal government. The state was promised some waivers on standards and assessment, and this, the Department of Education didn't grant them. Those are some of the problems that we have to face to make sure that Utahns really do have control of their education system going forward and that teachers do have a feeling of empowerment when they're in the classroom and not simply just a facilitator for the technology that they have been given. And, and once again, Utah needs to be able to make sure that we do have the ability of deciding how we want our education to go forward in the future because we are a different state than some others. One of the reasons I was never crazy about Common Core is they said, well, you know, math is the same in Massachusetts as Mississippi. True, but the kids are different and our education system has to be focused on the kids and how they need their individualized education going forward, not simply on on what the, the basic process is coming, especially one coming from Washington. Let me ask you both, though. I, I've heard this uh, uh, quite a lot over the years, that there's too much testing and that that's not a good way to measure success uh, when, it, when it comes to education. Um, what do you, but nobody ever seems to be able to shake, shake loose of that. What, what has to happen? Well, the first thing that has to happen is we have to understand all the requirements that are being put on teachers, and then we need to start to roll them back. Some mm-hmm. of them are put on by the federal government, and we need to start unentangling ourselves from the federal government so that we don't have to take their standardized testing and rules and their one-size-fits-all approach to education. Because Congressman Bishop's right. The children in Utah are not the same as children in other state and other states. And that's why I said earlier, government sometimes becomes about the processes and not about the outcomes. Mm-hmm. The way that you... The, when you're focused on processes, you have uh, you, you, you implement things like Common Core and you implement standardized testing because all you're looking at is numbers. You're not looking at human potential and individuals. In my business, I have the same challenge, Amy. I have to look at my employees as individuals and how they're meeting their potential and how they're helping the business grow and be successful. If I have just one metric at the end of the process to judge how they're doing, I'm not looking at all of their intangibles and all the things that they're doing in addition to what I'm measuring. That's the problem with the education system is we're testing them at the very end of the year when it's too late to change anything anyway, and the test change and the test measures everybody exactly the same. We need to have competency-based understanding of education and say, are mm-hmm. the students competent on the subject matter and do that along the way? Yeah. Competency-based measurement is a lot better than standardized testing at the end of the school year because there's so many bright kids that are not testing well Mm -hmm. and to imply that they're somehow not doing as well as the ones that are is foolish yeah i'm going to confess to being one of those kids who was terrible on the test but but also i i i got i got really good at at doing what i needed to to take a test and not worrying about what i was learning and i think that's also a problem when you look at testing um, one question I or one idea we have about a minute left, but I wanted 
Um, Rob, you mentioned that, uh, you know, the differences and especially the issues in from different districts and letting local school districts kind of manage their own issues the way that they need to or the way that's best for their for their patrons. I just wondered um, about the uh, equalizing of funds, because I think it's um, absolutely imperative that people deal with the problems in front of them in their community the way they see fit. But I also think there's an issue of uh, a disparate in the um, in how funding happens. So you have really poor schools and districts and really rich schools and districts. And how do you equalize that? Well, um, it, we have always had, since we went on the way to pupil unit back in, what was it, the 60s, we have always had an equalization of funds so that every district was supposed to establish what at that time was the middle levy now is the percentage, and they would see what would be generated into that, into that district. And then the state's responsibility would be then to fund the WPU so you could raise everyone up to a level that they would have equal funding and then allow, if districts wanted to actually tax themselves even higher for their particular schools. But the equalization is there. The equalization formula has been adjusted several times, but it is still that every district should get the same number of dollars for each kid that they have there, and that's appropriate. Although there are still line items in there for uh, necessary and existing rural schools, there are still items there for special needs education that can give additional items, but it has to be able to follow the kids. Uh, we've also equalized, that's that's a maintenance operation. We've also equalized in Utah the capital outlay, which is for construction needs, so that every district should be, be able to come up with the amount of money that they need on the same basis. There is no district that actually gets more coming from the state, unless they really want to go out of their way and, and do something on their own above and beyond. Um, but so that's that's the that's the funding mechanism that's there, and that handles both maintenance and operation handles capital outlay. But it also, uh, I mean, we have some other problems here, especially you know we, you're talking about the testing. Somebody told me I think yesterday we have something like 260 evaluations that are supposed to come through, and we only have 180 days of school. We we have some problems in trying to readjust what our priorities really are. Yes. Um, okay. So, but that is there. So equalization. Even when I was in the legislature, we were still equalizing, and uh, that is still the core principle so that the money, every kid could should generate the same amount of money for their particular schools. We'll continue this discussion when we come back. You're listening to a candidate conversation on Voices of Reason. with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. This week, we're having another candidate conversation series, uh, a candidate conversation in our series for Utah's Republican Gubernatorial Convention coming up later this month. Today, we're speaking with Republican Thomas Wright. He's a former chair of the Utah Republican Party and his running mate, 1st District U.S. Congressman Rob Bishop. And uh, Thomas, kind of offline, we talked about a couple of things we'd like to hit bef- you know, uh, in the next couple of minutes. But one of the things is higher ed. And uh, what was the other one we just mentioned? Affordable housing. But let's let's go with higher ed. What are your thoughts on how we could do better when it comes to college and post-secondary education? Well, I've really become a student of higher education. I was on the Dixie State Board of Trustees, and then now I've been appointed to be on the Board of Regents. And I can tell you, we have the finest, highest higher education choices in the country. 
And as governor, I'll continue to make sure that we have that system. But we need to focus on degrees that will support the needs of our economy. And I love our applied technology colleges. They are so fantastic. And for a very affordable price, uh, there's a great alternative to the standard uh, traditional four-year degree. And we're moving in a direction with our economy where we have a lot of unemployed people. And I think continuing to have concurrent enrollment programs with our high schools, with our applied technology colleges to help students identify pathways to careers earlier is a really positive step in the right direction. And as governor, I want to do that. I want to encourage students to attain the four-year degree if they want, but let them know that there's also applied technology certificates that they can get to enter the workforce and have successful careers. I love that. I was a person who probably wouldn't have chosen a four-year uh, college degree. Uh, Had but you I, known, yeah. Yeah, right. but, but I mean, I think you look, everyone told me like, that's the way you make a living wage. Like you can't make a living if you don't go to school. You're going to. Um, oh, there's so many. Yeah. I was at, I was at the, you know, I've been in the applied technology colleges and whether it's welding or plumbing or, you know, carpentry or framing. I mean, there's so many fantastic certificates aerospace, that are available. Yeah, aerospace. So I wish I would have known all of that. And I know there's a lot of students out there that feel the same way. So <laughs> let's let's get away from just thinking this is all about just a traditional four-year degree and into workforce development. We have 80,000 people, as we mentioned earlier today, that have filed for unemployment. Let's identify ways to help them identify new careers and get trained for them immediately. Okay. And then what about affordable housing? I mean, what can we actually, what can the government do about the cost of housing? Especially well, the, since it's going up so high in yeah. the sense that right now we're, we're having such a crisis that in a couple of years, the average person or even a couple won't be able to buy their starter house because they will be so expensive. It's such a problem. Uh, it's a bigger problem than just that, too, because what happens when people cannot afford housing is their children really suffer. They have more behavioral health issues. They don't do as well in school and they don't meet their potential. So the affordable housing crisis is not just about housing. It's about economic development and it's about human potential. There's really three things that contribute to the price of housing, uh, the cost of materials, the cost of labor, and the cost of land. And when the cost of labor and the cost of materials has been as high as it has been, what happens is developers look for land on the perimeter. And when you're looking for land on the perimeter, it's cheaper. But when you're developing on the perimeter, you're contributing to urban sprawl. We have to build more roads. We have to build more schools. And we're contributing more to air quality challenges. So what we need to do is we need to get really creative about the affordable housing crisis. And it really starts in two places. Number one, we need to eliminate the stigma associated with it. Uh, there's too many people that think, yes, we have an affordable housing crisis, but we don't want affordable housing in our backyard. Uh, that NIMBY, that not in my backyard mentality. Affordable housing is not what people think it is. It's about having great workforce in your community and fantastic citizens that are contributing to your, to, to your society and to your local economy. And as governor, I've, I, I will never have a heavy hand and mandate that states change or that local municipalities change their zoning ordinance or their land use policies, but I will encourage them to do so. And let me just give you one quick idea. We used to build these big box retailers, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they had these massive parking lots. Yep. Well, the world's changed since then. We don't go to big box retailers like we used to. We, we go on Amazon and we do things online. What about taking some of those big parking lots and, and having cities say, hey, we can make a zoning variance right here and have an apartment building put at the back of this parking lot and it wouldn't affect anyone. The landowner would be thrilled. The people that need housing would be thrilled and we could do it in a cost effective way. Those are the creative ideas I want to bring to state government 
to help local municipalities and cities solve the affordable housing crisis. And make no mistake about it, this isn't just an urban Utah problem. This is a rural Utah problem. The children in rural Utah are leaving rural Utah, not because they want to, but because there's not enough housing for them there and there's not a diverse enough economy. Well, hopefully some of this uh, work remotely that we've learned through the coronavirus crisis will benefit rural Utah. It should. But one of the challenges we have is we lack broadband and connectivity in rural Utah. It's been really surprising to me as I've traveled to 29 counties. We need to make sure that we're connecting all of our communities because if you don't have a cell signal or an Internet connection, you're just going to get left behind in this economy. And so as governor, that's one of the things I want to tackle. Okay, awesome. Um, Let's do a a little uh, little bit of have some fun. Do you have hobbies or a favorite movie or TV show, Thomas, and then Rob? Oh, I love the outdoors. I'm a big sportsman. I love to hunt and to fish. I've spent a lot of time in the backcountry in Utah, really all over Utah. And uh, I, I just absolutely love being in the outdoors. So that's probably uh, the hobby. My favorite TV show, Monday Night Football. I hope it'll be back <laughs> soon. Yeah. You're one of those people having sports withdrawals, right? Big time. But I, you know, I did see some, uh, you know, some classic sports on. I was watching a uh, as I made calls to delegates yesterday, I was watching the 1986 Masters on ESPN, and that was a that was a good blast from the past. Who won that one? Jack Nicklaus. Well, I haven't finished walking watching, no. but, but I'm, you know I, that. I, I think I know the outcome. Spoiler yeah. alert! Yeah. <laughs> Rob, what, what about you? Um, look, my wife and I met while we were doing a community theater in a musical. <laughs> so actually, we enjoy going to plays. We enjoy going to musicals mm-hmm. locally. Uh, we, every year we do a, a trip down to Tuacon. That's one of the things that we actually enjoy together. It sounds weird. I love baseball. I still have season tickets to the Salt Lake Bees. It is important to me. Um, if, and I'm, I'm sorry, if you want favorite TV shows, this is going to show how old I really am. First of all, I love Don't Magnum do it, Rob. P. Don't do it. You can oh. do it. You can do it. Don't I love do Lucy. It. I love Magnum PI, the new version. That's they're, they're starting again this week. I'm excited. It's actually about pretty it. good. Wait, I, there's I, an I'm, old version. <laughs> yeah, sheesh. All right, I'll, I'm going to watch that instead of calls now. Uh, Seal Team, a very good show, by the way. <laughs> I I like those, but I do admit I go on to the old uh, nostalgia channels. Mm-hmm. There is nothing still. I I still laugh at every episode of the original Dick Van Dyke show, and I have to have a fix of Perry Mason every night before I go to bed. Yeah, two of my favorites. Um, I also like to know uh, if you guys have ever had anything in your lives, any challenges or adversity that you've had to deal with that that really shaped who you became or the path that you took in your life. Well, I lost my father to early onset Alzheimer's. And uh, watching him go through that process, uh, a, a man who was extremely intelligent and driven, and to watch his mental faculties be taken from him slowly over a 20-year period, uh, was absolutely devastating, not only for him, of course, but for my mom and for our family. And, and that taught me a lot about so many things, caregiving, compassion, uh, the needs people have, and, and really has shaped me as a person. I miss him. Rob? I have really not. Look, I think I've lived a charmed life. I think we talked about this before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, have, I have a fractured foot right now. That is the first bone I have ever broken in my entire life. I've never had crutches before or a boot before. I just, I feel I, I really have been lucky mm-hmm. in my family as I was growing up. They had a great influence on me uh, as, because they were trip, 
great people and a wonderful wife I met with good kids that really have been very easy to raise and uh, and productive citizens. So I, I, I really think I've, I'm more blessed than I deserve. Let me say that. Thank okay. you. Kudos to you. Well, listen, uh, Thomas Wright, uh, Congressman Rob Bishop, thank you Wait, very much. For we the have vote. one more thing. You got it. Oh, oh, yes. That's right. Yeah. What, why, why should, should people, people vote, vote for you? For you? Well, we're the dream team. I mean, look at us. We we have the perfect mix of the outside perspective, me having never held publicly elected office and bringing a business set of skills to government to get our budget in line and to match our spending with our priorities and to be constitutional conservatives and bringing all of that with Rob's experience in the classroom and in state government and in the federal government. We, we're running because we want to serve Utahns and we want to give back to the state that's given us so much. And we really are the perfect pairing. Excellent. Thank you both very much for joining us and best of luck on the campaign trail. Thanks for having us on. Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about our show, please contact us via email at vormed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at AD on Sports and at Jason Lee One. Our show's Twitter handle is at VRR Podcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.